KT, it's Paul from Mudwater. I want to sincerely thank you for putting this idea in the world to interview your dad. I read your blog post um, and immediately fired up Zoom to talk to my dad. And I asked him questions like, if you don't get the chance to meet your grandkids, what would you want them to know? And um, I can't believe I almost didn't do something like that. Uh, it was really special. And um, if you're listening to this, I would really encourage you to do that. Uh, anyway, thank you, man. It made my day. It made my dad's day. And I don't think I've done anything more important this year. So uh, shout out to you, man. Peace. And that right there is why I do what I do. Thank you so much, Paul. Uh, that made my day, man. Seriously. I did do a podcast with my dad uh, a few episodes ago. Got a big response. So I did a whole article on my website, kyle.surf, where I provide interview techniques for any of you who want to interview your dad. It was kind of a challenge to the community. And a lot of you responded. A lot of dad interviews apparently went down. And uh, I would love to hear more about how they went. So if you uh, if you did one of those interviews, or if you're just listening from a cool spot and want to send in 30 seconds to a minute of audio, bust out your phone, uh, give me some details about where, you're, where you are right now, and email it to info at kyle.surf. I'd love to hear from you. Um, it's a great form of um, payment for this podcast. If you uh, if you can't support it on Patreon, if you aren't in a financial position um, to to help out, totally no worries. Um, providing these voice memos is also um, it's like it's like happiness payment for me. So just keep it under a minute and send it to info at kyle.surf. Also, Paul, if you're listening to this, don't think I didn't see your sneaky little Mudwater ad in your intro. Oh, this is Paul from Mudwater. I catch everything, Paul. I catch everything. It's a good thing that I like Mudwater. It's a good thing that they pay me sometimes to write articles for them. So I'm giving you a free ad right now. Mudwater, a coffee alternative. But Paul, don't think I didn't fucking see what you were doing right there. I saw this episode is, though, supported by my box of goodies. I just launched this. It's a subscription service where every month I send you a book that I love along with a potent CBD tincture from Santa Cruz Medicinals, okay? So the way it works is every month you get a box of goodies. Um, you read the book. Next month, you read a new book, makes you smarter, supports the podcast. Um, I will usually pick authors who have been on this podcast. Ben Moon was in the last episode. He's a Patagonia adventure photographer. He's a badass. It's a book that will make you want to buy a van and go climb a mountain, um, which is, you know, it's worth the money for the book. Um, and Ben's a great guy. So you can head over to my website, kyle.surf, click the box of goodies, and you can get the subscription. Um, so if you're thinking about supporting the podcast, if you want to read more, um, that is a good way to do it. And if you're not in a financial position to, to do that, p times are tough, people are struggling, just keep listening and save your money. Um, yeah, seriously, that's um, I really don't want anyone to donate to this podcast who is in a financial position where it's like it's really making a big big difference for you. Um, so that should be a priority in your life.
And I'm also grateful to say that we brought on the Nell Newman Foundation as a sponsor of this podcast. The Nell Newman Foundation was um, the primary funder for the Motherfucker Awards for two years. They support bold, unpopular ideas. Um, Nell's father, Paul Newman, um, did the same, so she is carrying on his legacy. And the way that, that we're doing ads with them is that rather than try and sell you a product, I get to connect you with a worthy cause in each ad. So the one that we are supporting this month is the Ron Finley Project. Ron Finley, a.k.a. the Gangster Gardener, is building um, food food gardens in urban areas, in food deserts. And he is building um, a great one in South Los Angeles. Uh, it's Ron Finley from the Ron Finley Project, Gangster Gardener. Um, what I'm trying to do here is um, beautify my space more where it's more convenient and more lush. And, and um, what I want to do is start bringing more community in. So what we need, we need somebody that can build us a riser inside our swimming pool. And also we got a deck going in so we can have yoga classes and we can do dinners and lunches and presentations. And that's, that's what I want this space to be this welcome and opening to show people how we can design these urban areas to look beautiful and design them for humanity. That's what we're trying to do. Um, he has this big backyard that looks like a forest. I went over to his house and did a podcast with him. And uh, he's got this derelict swimming pool. And he's got trees and you know banana trees growing out of the swimming pool. And um, he needs volunteers You know when this thing's all over. So if you're in LA and you want to support, um, specifically he's looking for builders to help um to help do some some building projects for the ron finley project um if you're in that position if you want to help out community service getting involved in your neighborhood projects it's a great way to fight the fracturing of the united states with uh social fascia it's what we do in our neighborhoods it's it's how we contribute on a daily basis, you know, that keeps the world together, really. We're, I think that we're realizing that now with the people who deliver packages and the nurses and people who are behind the scenes, largely, who keep shit running. Um, that was a tangent, but it's, it's, what, it's, um, it's the fascia of our globe and so is community involvement. So I hope you do that. Check out the Ron Finley Project. Click the link below. And thank you so much to the Nell Newman Foundation for supporting this show. My guest today is a new mother. And you'll hear a screaming baby in the background for just a moment. But then we took care of it. Kimmy Werner is a Patagonia ambassador. She is the she was the United States spearfishing champion. She is a culinary chef, award-winning author, sought-after speaker, and her daily life is a pure fusion of her talents rooted in sustainability, geared towards a healthy future and global community. Um this was maybe my favorite podcast of all time, and I will leave it there. So please give it up for my friend Kimmy Werner.
second here. I'm really stoked that we're doing this. It's been a long time coming. I know. We've talked about it forever. Yeah. And I also um, have you to thank for getting me into hunting uh, inadvertently because you were the one who introduced me to Justin Lee years ago, Mm -hmm. who I often credit for getting me uh, into hunting, but it was actually you that initiated that text thread. So thank you for that. Yeah. I've, I've wasted many, many hours now. I've, I've wasted so many hours in the Santa Cruz mountains trying to hunt Turkey (laughs) through this quarantine because of you. You're welcome. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. And, um, how's, uh, how's your hunting experience has been? Have you gone on any, um, bow hunting trips anytime recently? I have. Um, and they've been, they've been quite epic. They've been something that I haven't talked about too much, but, um, but they've really been like stories of a lifetime. Really. I, I actually went on my first access deer bow hunting hunt um was last year and uh actually it wasn't my first one but it was my second one and um and it was really cool my friend kylie she's this little animal of a of a hunter and a diver and she lives on the big island but she she really wanted to guide me because she's just this crazy killer um hunter girl and she wanted to guide me and help me get my first animal with a bow. And that same day, our other friend, Sean, wanted to guide Justin and help him get his first, his first deer. He's shot pigs and stuff before, but get his first access deer. And so- we This is both- Justin, your husband. Yes, yeah, exactly. And so we had, we split up and it was a, it was a girls against boys day is what it was. And, um, and I was just having so much fun just tracking the deer and getting close to them and didn't, didn't get any when Justin landed his first buck. Basically, we got a text and the boy said that Justin got a, a beautiful buck and, and it was all for fun. So we were just really stoked for them. But we kept hunting and then we, we came upon this herd of deer and Kylie was looking through her binos and she's like, oh, there's a nice buck. Like, take a shot. Can we take a shot? And she said that it was, uh, I think she said it was like 47 yards or something. And I honestly, I just started even practicing with a bow and it was dialed not to really shoot past 40 yards. And I was still building my muscles and pulling it back and just understanding anchor points and very, very fresh. And, and I told her like, Oh, Kylie, I can't, I can't shoot that far yet. And, and I'm not, you know, I definitely can't take a shot. That's like 47 yards. And she said, no, you can just aim high. And I was like, really? She's like, like, just, just aim high. And so, so that's what I did. And so I, I lined up, you know, aimed high, let my arrow fly. And she's still looking through her binos and she's like, ah, you missed it. That's okay. Let's keep going. And I was like, are you sure I missed it, Kylie? And she's like, yep. And she was just so watching this herd of deer that she wanted to keep tracking them. And I was like, you know, Kylie, I just want to look, I want to go there and just check. And, and she's like, you know, nah, fuck them. Let's just go. And, um, 
And I just kept saying that, no, I just want to go look. And finally, I just said, I want to go find my arrow. Like, just let me go find my arrow. And she was just so um, pulled towards following this herd. And so we started walking together. And then I'm like, I swear I see blood. And I thought my eyes were playing tricks on me. But I was like, no, I really, I really think I can see blood. Sorry about crying baby and no, uh, okay it's, it's adding to the ambiance of this podcast because we're going to talk about your film and motherhood so i like right. that you got some sound effects in there this is a <laughs> yeah. multimedia experience totally yeah um but and then i got to a point where i'm like you know what i think i see a lot of blood and i was looking and in the distance i swear i saw a tree that was just painted red and to the point where I really was like, I am imagining things. And I just kept walking towards it. And then sure enough, there is a tree covered in blood. And there is a buck kind of tangled up like a pretzel at the base of that tree. And I was like, Kylie, the deer. And um, she's like, what? Where's deer? Like she thought it was another active herd. And I'm like, no, like I shot it and it's dead and it's right there. And, <laughs> and she looked and she's like, oh, you know, fuck yeah. And so we just... Um, went up and apparently it had gone right through the jugular of this deer and it bled out immediately and was just tangled up like a pretzel at this tree. And so Kylie then sent the boys a text just saying, oh, it's a tie, Kimmy's on her first deer. And and so we, we sent them, you know, of course, like I said, it's all for fun. So the boys were like, that's amazing. Send us your location. We wanna come check this out. What a great day. And so we sent a pin and Kylie and I got to work at cleaning this deer. And then a little while later, we got a text or no, we got a phone call from the boys. And as soon as I said hello, I could hear them. So they were close. I could hear them with my other ear. And they're like, where are you guys? And I said, oh, didn't you get the pin we sent? Um, I can hear you. You're close. Just keep coming. And they said, yeah, but why aren't you by your deer? And I said, we're cleaning my deer right now. And they're like... Oh, funny, because we're standing next to one with your arrow in it. So I got two deer with one arrow. It went through the jugular of one buck out into the vitals of a spike that ran like 50 yards away and then died. And then Kylie just said, we win. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was that my bow hunting experience. an amazing first bow hunting experience. Oh, my God. I don't talk about it a lot because I don't want to make it I it, basically, it was all luck. It was all a magic arrow. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm totally not oblivious to the fact that, that I should be practicing more and shooting more arrows and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but yeah, even if I were to, to never bow hunt again, to, to have that be my, my experience, I almost feel like, okay, maybe I should just quit now. <laughs> but it was yeah, awesome one and done it's like it's like going to the blackjack jack table for your first time and just betting and winning all the money and then stepping away exactly and just knowing that it was pure dumb luck you know that that got you there um but we're still eating the meat because we you know we took home three deer that day and so it has filled all of our freezers and every single time I pull out uh, a package up from the fridge and it says winner on it. <laughs> it, it, it tastes really good. <laughs> tastes like victory. Mm-hmm. How have you been cooking it? All kinds of ways. Um, 
but if I grill it, I like to make this rosemary, Dijon, garlic, olive oil, smear and marinate it overnight and then just cook it on my Traeger. I smoke it for most of the day and then crank it up to reverse sear it. And that's just absolutely delicious. But other cuts, um, I'll braise it. I'll make soups. We, we do everything. We make burgers and sandwiches and everything you can imagine. Do you put the deer straight on the grill or do you put a uh, foil down below it? I I've ha- like been experimenting with different smoking techniques on low heat. And, um, a lot of times it'll come out dry. Um, and I then have, have put it in a crock pot afterwards with like half a beer and a bunch of different spices to get moisture back in it. Right. Um, and I've had people recommend that you can kind of spray it down with mm-hmm. with different seasoning as you're going through. But how have you um, found you to have, have like the best technique? Okay, I'm gonna sound like a commercial, and I totally don't mean to. It's, but but do you I'm have into a, it. do you have a Traeger grill? I do have a Traeger. And well, for me personally, I I don't do any of that, and I put it straight on the grill, and I don't I don't have to worry about it and that's the only grill that i found that i can do that with but i will i'll just if you put a little olive oil around it too i noticed that can help uh i think that kind of just seals things but but what i've noticed with the traeger is if i am smoking it even if i go for hours um it's still just moist and delicious inside it's just i don't ever get those really tough dried out pieces of of meat that i've always been so used to when it comes to wild game i've always liked wild game but it's been tricky uh, and how not to dry it out but i swear using the traeger and and that's what that's what sold me on the traeger uh, more than anything i never even thought i would like a grill that you plug in that just didn't seem like my style um but the minute i started cooking wild game on it and i realized wow, this is so easy. I can put it here, walk away, come back, and it, it's going to be delicious, moist, and perfect every time and tender. Um, that's been my experience. It really has. And and I'll, I, if I don't use my Traeger, then I normally end up braising it because that, I feel like, will keep moisture in since it's obviously a moist cooking technique. Yeah. Yeah, and full disclosure, Traeger sent, was nice enough to send me a grill, and I've been experimenting with it. And I'm like a domesticated man now. Like all I do is like wear my apron and like try different cooking techniques on the Traeger. It's like I don't actually know how much I love hunting anymore. I think I just love smoking, and like hunting is on the way to smoking. Oh, exactly. Pretty, uh, no, that's a good that's a good order of things. It gives yeah. you incentive when you hunt. It does. And what, what took you so long to get into, um, archery was, were you just in the diving world and it never really like tickled your fancy until recently? I think, I think I got into diving and it just absolutely consumed me. And I got so addicted to everything about hunting underwater. And I'm like, um, I'm very much like a Mr. Miyagi, you know, of karate kid where when I get into something, I just want to learn it so thoroughly from start to finish that I get obsessive about it. And, and so I think I was so obsessed with diving that there was no room in my brain to obsess over something else. And 
And then I think I just realized that oh <laughs> the baby's going off. Um, maybe I should call him, tell him to you, come. You want to just okay. yeah? We can pause for a sec. Let's okay, sorry, out. sorry. No problem. Justin. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. Close your ears, Kyle. No worries. I'm a screamer. Okay. It's okay. Come here. Put this in your mouth. And be quiet. Good? Okay. All right, so we've got a uh, nurse and baby on the podcast. This is, a first for me. this is a first for me, Kimmy. <laughs> really happy. Uh, oh, don't your ears feel better already? Yeah, well done. Um, so let's talk about you getting into archery while you're nursing your child. This is a great moment in time. Yeah, so when it comes to archery, it's something that I've always had just a crazy amount of respect for. And so many of my dive partners or dive mentors would just tell me like, oh, Kimmy, like once you get into it, it's just gonna take over everything. And I think in a way that's what I was afraid of because I would lose a lot of my dive partners once they got into hunting because they would um, obsess over it and and be doing land hunts instead of ocean hunts. And I think for me, I just felt like, oh gosh, I just don't know if I have enough, you know, space in my being to take up something, something else when diving is like my obsession. And so I put it off. I just put it off for a really long time. And then I got to the point where I realized, um, kind of similar to what you said, is that I wanted to, I wanted to know the end game. I wanted to understand how to cook, cook the wild game before I got into hunting it. And, and I realized that, that it made sense because when I was a little kid, I grew up eating fish. I grew up helping my mom, you know, clean and scale these fish, helping my grandma prepare these fish. And, um, and then later on, I, w I got into hunting them and I was able to bring them home. But but that was a huge part of my inspiration in hunting. It was the food. It was, it was like going to a grocery store. <clears throat> it was, what do I want to make today? What do I want to eat for dinner? Okay, I'm going to go out and get it now. And I think with, with hunting, I didn't have that same confidence with wild game. I, you know, for years, if I ate meat, it was just stuff from the supermarket. But if you were to have given me a piece of wild boar or deer, I probably would have messed it up or, or, you know, not quite known how to do it right. Um, whereas today it's like, I haven't, I haven't bought meat from the store in over eight years. Um, and so I made that transition first where I just realized if I want to get into hunting, <clears throat> I don't want to be one of those people. Like I sometimes would come across people I would dive with where we, I take them out diving and, um, you know, we'd go diving together and they shoot fish and then they'd be like, oh, you can have it, Kimmy. And it's kind of like, motherfucker, if I wanted that fish, I would have shot it myself. Like, I didn't want that fish. That's why I didn't shoot it. Like, why did you shoot it? If And so I tell them, oh, no, I don't need that fish. And they're like, well, I don't know what to do with it. 
you know, and I was just like, then why are you shooting it? Like, I just, that always kind of irritated me when it came to diving. It was just people who were so into the kill and didn't even know how to back it up after that. And they didn't even know how to follow through and, and make something out of it. Or they had no desire to. And they're like, okay, yeah, now I'm going to go to McDonald's or whatever. And it's just like, I just, I just don't get that. You know, it's like that has never been something that I understood or respected. And so I guess what I'm trying to say in a very long way is that when it came to archery, I knew it was something I wanted to get into, but I didn't want to be that guy or that girl where I was trying to just get into something to kill it, but didn't even know how to follow through. And um, and so first I just started um, accepting meat from hunters and, and learning how to cook it, learning just so many different ways where I wanted it, I wanted to be able to make this meat taste so delicious, you know, that, that it would just be exactly what I wanted to eat um, before I got into hunting it. And, and then that's what I did. And that was a, I didn't expect all the benefits that came with it, but that was really cool because like I said, um, you know, at first wild game was something I thought was cool to eat, and, you know, and I, I enjoyed it, but if you gave me the option of, do you want venison or would you like a nice ribeye steak, you know, from the market at the restaurant, like, it'd be like, oh, hands down, no question, which one I think tastes better. And, and so I think I first I just wanted to learn how to truly appreciate wild game. And when I started to do that, finally, I, like, I looked up one day and realized that in that process, my taste had changed completely where... I can genuinely say I would choose the venison and not just for environmental reasons or whatever, but just for flavor. I, I relearned flavor. Um, not to say I don't eat beef. We, we raised a, a cow named Stewie that ate bananas every day of his life. And he is the most delicious steaks I've ever had. But I kind of started to realize that I think as a society, we just kind of got you know, fed these very bland, flabby meats that we got really used to that then when we tried real flavor, we're like, oh, that's gamey and strong. Whereas now I, I appreciate that flavor more. And when you know how to cook it and you know how to, to bring it out right. Um, yeah, it's just, it's as good as it gets. And it feels good for my body. It feels really good. And so I, I got, to that point, and then I realized, um, okay, now I want to know how to clean an animal because same with fish. Before I even shot them, I knew how to clean them. And so then I would just, when my friends would would get deer, you know, sometimes I'd even be on Molokai diving and getting lobsters, and I'd come out of the water, and all my friends would be there, just got you know finished hunting, and be like, "You said you wanted to learn how to clean deer, like let's go." And there's pictures of me like helping skin a deer wearing my wetsuit because that's how eager I was to learn that part. But I guess I just really wanted to get my hands dirty with that kind of stuff um, before being like, I'm going to go kill this animal and then have no idea what to do with it. So that took a long time. <laughs> it's a smart way to get into it though. Um, and I, I'm certainly no authority on hunting because I just got into it a few years ago, but I'm really excited about it. And I, I actually think that the hunt's not even really over until you're able to cook and share that meat. 
100%. It's like, this, it's like this process that hasn't fully ended and doesn't feel complete for me until I'm around that dinner table. And I completely agree. And just as hunting is this like, it, it is a, a primal activity. It kind of taps you into this different part of yourself. I think that eating food around a dinner table with friends also taps you into that same kind of like primal frequency that we've been doing for millions and millions of years. You know, I mean, it's, it goes back to hunter, hunter gather society. Like if you were eating alone back then, you didn't feel safe. You know, you were not part of the tribe and it's difficult to fully relax. And, and I certainly feel that like if I'm, if I can share wild meat that I've hunted with friends there, there's like this element where I'm like, okay, coronavirus is happening. Like, I don't know what's going to happen to the economy, but on some deep level, we're all good. Completely. Um, and yeah, I, I 100% agree on all of that. Like to the point where even when it comes to going diving, going hunting, any of that, the time that I almost like will cross off of my calendar of, okay, well, if I'm going to go diving, then I know I'm not only giving up this day of getting, you know, a lot of work done, but I'm giving up the next day too, because I am going to spend the next day absolutely cleaning, preparing, you know, that whole cooler full of fish, whether it's smoking it or just cutting it up or cooking it or, or giving it away. And, you know, I, I would say, you know, people always say, Oh, what's your normal day like? And I don't really have any type of routine. But I would say that the one routine thing about my life is every single day, it revolves around taking inventory of, of the food that we have, and understanding how to best like, honor it or see it through. And that's because all the food we have is you know, straight from the land or straight from the ocean and harvested in a way that gives me this like deep, deep respect for it where my job is not done to that animal until it is completely appreciated, nourishing good people. And, um, and I also agree with you that when you sit around and you share a meal, there is something very primal about that but I also think it takes it back to respecting the animal and the environment because when you're eating food that has a story, that story often gets shared while you're eating it. And I think that's just a really important thing that our world is missing out on so much today where there's no transparency in our food system. So every day people are just eating food without even being able to determine the story behind that food. And so these stories aren't really shared. In fact, they're more so hidden because, you know, the people profiting off of things, they don't want you to know that story. Whereas it's the opposite. When you go out, get your own hands dirty, you know, dive or hunt for your food, you, you end up sharing this food when you, when you eat it with others. And I think that's really cool because it gives, you know, the eater a connection to the source of where this came from. But I also feel on a spiritual level that it also, it honors that plant, it honors that animal. And in my own way, I think it immortalizes it because its story is being told, its story is living on, you know, and it is nourishing us. We're putting nature into our body while communicating and showing gratitude to the story of it. Did your diet change when you became pregnant? 
No, not, I mean, yeah, I ate a lot more, but, um, <laughs> but as far as what I ate, I would say, I mean, yeah, I definitely had cravings that were stronger than normal, but, um, as far as did I stop eating fish or anything like that? Absolutely not. Um, it was wild game and fish that I lived off of along with just the local fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Um, and how long were you diving while you were pregnant? I, all, all the way through my complete, my entire pregnancy. It was like, I think my last hunt where I went out and got dinner was probably a week and a half before I gave birth. And how deep were you going? Uh, I got shallower and shallower. Um, cause I didn't, you know, I, I basically, when I first started diving while pregnant, I was still, I was still going, I felt like I was being conservative, um, but I was still I was still diving like 60 feet, 70 feet in the beginning, um, but just really listening to my body, really, really not pushing it. Where before, when I would do a dive, you know, as soon as I would feel like the urge to breathe, that was when my dive started. That was like when okay, this is the part I like because now it's the, how to kind of move past your brain and tap into something deeper and um, and push past these boundaries that your brain makes for you. That's how diving feels to me. But when I was pregnant, um, just because I had so many uncertainties and I don't, I don't, you know, didn't really know of any other free diving mothers at the time. As soon as I would feel the urge to breathe, I'm like, okay, that's fine. And I would just go up. I just wouldn't push it at all. And I would always just very much like talk to my baby and just like try and like when I take that deep breath of air, I would just try and send it all to my baby. But the minute I would feel or the second I feel the urge to breathe, I'd go back up. And um, and then as I got, you know, bigger and further along, I just started going shallower and shallower. And, um, and so even when I say I, I dove like about a week before giving birth, I was like in, um, 12 feet of water getting little fish. How does, um, like for people who might be curious about like hypoxia and, um, not getting air to the baby, what's your understanding of how oxygen works throughout the body when you're on a dive and how that relates to, um, baby a baby when you're pregnant i mean my understanding is basically when you when you hold your breath first of all the most important thing is to kind of get to a relaxed state and and slow down your heart rate and your hemoglobin delivers you know the oxygen to where it needs to go and it knows where it needs to go however if you if you just keep holding your breath and keep holding your breath, you are going to become hypoxic, which means that, you know, you're have an insufficient amount of alcohol of, of oxygen. <laughs> yeah, I want to hear more about these dives, Kimmy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you and, yeah, you and Justin and Mark Healy are having some fun out on these dives. huh? Yeah. That's how you hold your breath for so long. And then it gets to the point where, you know, if, if a part of you doesn't get enough oxygen, um, you know, especially if your brain doesn't get enough oxygen, then you're going to black out. And so that that's kind of what what happens with 
with diving. Um, and so it's just really important that I think that you know what the signs of, of hypoxia are and, and, and you know how to listen to them so, so that you can, because it, it is a, a fine line in a way. It's like our brains are going to tell us we need to breathe long before we need to breathe. Um, and that, that is the first thing you kind of have to push through in order to be a diver is to understand like, okay, that's my brain. That's my fear. Um, that's because I haven't been doing this my whole life or whatever it is, you know, um, because that's, that's the truth. It's just like in our society, most of us don't hold our breath and go to the bottom of the ocean. Most of us take really shallow breaths, not from our diaphragm. Um, in a, in a way, the only time we were really breathing the right way was when we were babies. You know, when you watch a baby breathe, when they inhale, their their tummy expands when they exhale it deflate it deflates and that's the correct way to breathe that's how we started breathing as as a baby and then over time we kind of change that where you know when you take a picture and you don't want your stomach to look big the first thing people say is is suck in right where because that will make you skinny and that's because you're breathing wrong because if if you're breathing correctly when you suck in and when you inhale your tummy should really pop out so over the course of time, and I think a lot of it is, you know, just just because of society, because we don't want big tummies, we want big chests. You know, we learn to breathe the wrong way, and um, and so our brain gets used to these patterns. And so it's like our brain is like this guy in this operating in, in, in this like control panel room, and he's looking at a graph of every day for you know your thirty years of life or whatever it is, and how it's been this very shallow breathing. And it's been pretty consistent at that. And then if you all of a sudden start to free dive and you try it and he sees your graph just kind of do something totally different and, you know, flatline for a while, he's going to start to freak out and he's going to start pushing buttons in that control room. And he's going to like, be like, bam, you know, fear, go, go kick her and tell her she's going to die, you know, or anxiety kick in or, and it'll even like pull real buttons where it'll be like diaphragm give her a contraction so she can feel that her body's actually trying to breathe for her and she, she listens. And, and at that point, your potential of how much you could hold your breath is so much greater than your brain is even thinking because he or she is just trying to keep things normal and keep things consistent as to how they have been. And so it's your job as a diver to kind of listen to these signs and be like, okay, fear, thank you. Can you please go tell the brain I'm doing this on purpose. I'm choosing to hold my breath. Everything's going to be okay. Okay, anxiety. Thank you. Can you go away now? Okay, diaphragm. Thanks for the contraction, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to keep doing this. And then they'll go tell your brain that and it becomes this this like trust relationship where where then the brain starts to understand like what you're capable of and it allows you to do more and more. Um I just I just had a thought free divers should teach Lamaze classes. <laughs> Right, like a Lamaze <laughs> class is just a bunch of women learning how to breathe together. Right, exactly. Could get uh, get some free dive instructors in there. Could be <laughs> a new market for them. Nice burp, buddy. Um, but yeah, and so so there. But at the same time, obviously, if you hold your breath too long, um, 
you are going to get hypoxic. And there are ways that, you know, signs from your actual body, whether it's your legs are burning or your vision is starting to get weird, you know, things like that, that um, your lips turn blue. If your partner thinks that your lips are looking blue, um, where it's like, okay, that really means that you're not getting enough oxygen and that you're, you're getting closer and closer to blacking out. And so, so, you know, the more that you just learn your body and kind of dive into that whole world, the more you're going to understand what your limits are. And then I like to just be extra, extra conservative to those limits. Yeah. You're talking about um, noticing fear and working with all these emotions that are really easy to take hold. Did you have any um, experiences during your pregnancy where you had to use those kinds of mental tools to get through any scary moments? Oh, yeah. Um, most definitely. I actually got, I mean, I would say it's during, during birth, I, um, I ended up being diagnosed with, they call it a disease, but with, um, with preeclampsia, where basically, my whole pregnancy went extremely, extremely well. And then one day I just kind of had a funny feeling and I went in and I asked them to take my blood pressure and my blood pressure has always been so, so, so low and it had just peaked and skyrocketed and, um, and I got sent immediately to the hospital because it looked like I was going to have a stroke. And it turned out that I have this condition called preeclampsia, um, which is it's a pretty rare disease you get right before you give birth. And basically your body is having a reaction to your placenta and um, to the way that your placenta attached itself to your uterus. It's having this really weird reaction to it and you can have a seizure and a stroke and, and it's the number one killer of moms basically and babies. Um, and, and it has been for thousands of years everywhere. Um, but so, so all of a sudden I'm, you know, rushed to the hospital. They think I'm going to have a stroke and, um, and buddy's heart rate when, uh, so basically they said we need to induce you because the only cure to preeclampsia is delivery. And, um, because you have to get rid of the placenta. Right. And, um, and I'm here, like, I was planning a home birth, you know, I was going to just go full hippie on this whole thing. And, and I'm just like, what is going on? And now I'm at the hospital where I didn't want to be um, about to have a stroke, apparently, and now I'm going to get induced and all of this kind of stuff. Um, but, but it was, it was real. And I could not bring my blood pressure down for the life of me. And, and the more I learned about preeclampsia, it just turns out it doesn't ever get better. It it only gets worse. And they kind of said, like, healthy people that get it, there are scariest cases because because um, I kept saying, you know, I, 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 I'm healthy. I'm not sick. And they said that, like, with that, you don't even feel sick until it's almost too late, you know. And um, and so anyway, but, but Buddy's heart rate started doing these crazy major drops and at one point um i just you know his his heart rate was setting off alarms everyone raced into the to my room put on their little shower caps and stuff and 
And then after four minutes, he came back and I was just like, what just happened? And, um, and they said, oh, we we're about to take you in for an emergency C-section. Um, and your baby just basically did a four minute free dive. And, and so, so basically we ended up just doing, um, with the emergency C-section, they would have knocked me out on general anesthesia and I would have just been knocked out and not there. And so I just told them, okay, let's just do a plan C-section and I want to be present when my baby comes through. Um, so the only thing about that was that we wouldn't be able to monitor his heart rate, which is doing these major dips. And so I just like really, really had to dig deep because again, this was not the environment I really wanted to be in. This was not the birth that I had planned, but I just knew like, okay, <laughs> number one, I can't have my blood pressure go any higher. I can't have a stroke. I can't have a seizure. I need to get this placenta out of me with my baby alive and healthy. I don't know why his heart rate is going down. I don't know if it's because of, you know, my blood pressure or what it is. But that was a time where I just felt like, especially when he, when his heart rate, when, when that four minute scare happened, I just knew right now reacting to this and panicking and being like, what's going on, you know, or whatever is not going to help anything. I have to just go to a place of calm and, and whatever. And so I, for that whole thing, I would just dig deep and talk to him the same way I would talk to him before I would take a dive in the ocean where I would just tell him, okay, like, we're going to do this together. You know, in the water during my whole pregnancy, I would just tell him like, okay, I'm going to like take this really deep breath. And I want you to take all the oxygen you can from it. And I just want you to be happy. And if at any point, anything doesn't feel right, you just let me know. And we're going to go back up and we're going to breathe together. And I always would talk to him when we would dive. And I honestly never felt more connected to him than when I would do that when he was in my tummy. And, and so during this whole scare, I just told him again, I'm like, okay, like, don't know what's going on, but you can handle this. And it's just like diving. We're going to stay calm together. We're going to hold on together. And um, and anytime things get scary, we're both just going to relax. We're going to conserve, you know, our oxygen. We're going to, you know, we're going to keep our heart rate slow but steady. And, um, and we're going to get to this together. And so basically, yeah, they ended up cutting me open in his umbilical cord, which is so all wrapped around him, which um, very, very cinched, which is what was causing um, his, his dips in his heart rate anytime I had a contraction. Um, it would, it would squeeze him too much, but we both, we both came through and, um, and got through that one together. And I do feel like, um, the diving and having to kind of really dig deep and go within and trust when you can't see like that, that was huge for me. Wow. That was cool. <laughs> this is a, a very strange question um, and I've never asked it to anyone before but I feel like you might actually have the words and the honesty to answer it but um, what does a mother's love actually feel like what does a mother's love actually feel like gosh let me think about that when it's I I think, let me really think about P.S. to everyone, the, the baby is being nursed right now. Yeah, we, we're switching boobs. Um, 
Okay, good. I would say it's 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 evolving. I'm a new mom, so I'm I'm really I'm really learning this myself and it, it goes in stages, like major stages. And so I guess for me the mother's love started when I was pregnant and it started when I knew that there was a little being inside of me that 100% like depended on me to to keep him safe and and keep him healthy and that was really interesting because it was such a strong version of a mother's love where I became so protective just so protective and so sensitive to what was good or bad you know for my baby and and it was something that it was actually truly amazing because I would just say one thing it really felt like was just cutting out the bullshit like and it just made me realize how much of my life I didn't think that I was like this but how much of my time I spent doing things because I felt like oh this is what I should do or or this is what will make you know other people happy or um you know or things like that and then all of a sudden didn't matter what it was, but none of that mattered anymore. All that mattered was, is this good for the baby or not good for the baby? And if it's if it's not good for the baby, and it could be, you know, health-wise, like um, obviously like my choices of what I was putting in my body, I didn't change my eating much, but I obviously wasn't like, you know, drinking, um, you know, going and drinking whiskey or anything. And, and, um, and so it changed those types of things, but also just energetically as well, where I just realized like if I was talking to someone and they, they were just someone I wasn't feeling before I would have been polite enough to just smile and carry on the conversation and, you know, just, just give that time and that energy just to not disappoint someone else when I was pregnant and it wasn't just hormones, but it was like a bullshit filter where it's like, if I, if, if that conversation or that person wasn't serving, um, you know, the well being of my energy, then I didn't see that as serving the baby. And I would just be like, I've got absolutely zero time for this. And like, and just not even not partake. And that was so, good and I mean anything it's like whether it was like social obligations or or you know just going to hang out with people where normally I would have done it just because I felt like it's expected of me but um but all of a sudden it just became very clear like this is this is serving us or this is not serving us and if it wasn't I'm just like I have no time for that and and it was purely out of love and that was was really really cool where i just um i started just saying no and cutting out so many things and and that was the best part about being pregnant was was just realizing like what was serving me and i spent all of my time trying to do exactly that whether it was um getting outdoors going for hikes going diving um whatever it was and and just not doing what didn't feel right and so that was wonderful because 
in loving and taking care of my baby, um, I, you know, inadvertently was loving and taking care of myself and reaping all the benefits from it energetically and physically and whatnot. And so that was an amazing stage. Um, you know, then, then, then I had birth and, and that was a real testament of a mother's love because at first I just found myself saying like, Oh no, no, you know, like, no, no, I'm not going to have a stroke. No, 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 not me. I'm healthy. No, I'm not going to get induced. No, I don't want this. I'm going to have a full natural birth at home. Like I want to go home and do this and really being resistant to it. And then all of a sudden realizing like, why is that so important to you? And realizing in a way it was, it was a lot of, of ego. It was a lot of the fact that I wanted to prove to myself that that's how I've lived my life. You know, it just, I want to prove to myself I can do this thing, whether it's, I want to do this deep dive, whether I am sailing to Antarctica and I want to do it without seasickness medicine to prove to myself that my body can do it. And, and I love pushing myself in that way. But at that time, when I just realized everything that I was at first kind of fighting for of like why I wanted the birth to be this certain way. And then all of a sudden just realizing like, this isn't about you. Like, it's not about you trying to like prove to yourself that you can do this thing without doctors, without hospital, without drugs, without whatever. And, and so that it can be this like crazy, like awesome experience and, and rite of passage, like, sorry, honey, like that's not the decision. Like it's not about you at all. And at the end of the day, what is absolutely most important like, and, and I just knew, like, I want to meet my baby. I want my baby to be here. I want my baby to. And, and so just in a way, like, things shifted because then it, it immediately went to just, like, what I was willing to almost, like, give up, you know, in a way because nothing else mattered. My own goal <laughs> was nothing compared to whether or not um, Buddy was going to make it here safely. And... And so that was a huge eye opener. And, and then since then, he's been with me for three months now. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's really, it's just really an interesting thing because you, it, it's this love that, that is challenging and that is a sacrifice. And it's not just this beautiful, radiant, like, um, everything that I do for this love is directly benefiting me. No, sometimes it's like you haven't slept, you haven't showered, you haven't like gone diving, you haven't done anything that you wanted to do because of this little being's needs. And, um, and so, so it's a whole different challenge, but it is, it is humbling. It is liberating. It is, it is so many things that kind of just like, but still though, it cuts out the bullshit. Like that, that's what a mother's love is. If I, could, if I could honestly just say the one consistent thing that I've learned is it just cuts out the bullshit. It just makes you realize like, oh yeah, that thing that you thought was important, it's not. 
oh, but this thing, it really is, you know? And, um, and, and it just, it helps me navigate. It's like, he is this new compass that, um, that really just, whether my ego likes it or not, it, it makes me realize kind of instantly, um, what's important in life. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you just came out with your new movie about women who are a bit older, who are still mm-hmm. diving. I thought it was a very great message. A um, bunch of badass old abalone divers in their 60s and 70s, shucking abs, talking about giving birth. That was a... Um, a great moment when you guys were all sitting around the table and they're shucking abs and they're like, I have three kids. I have four kids. Like <laughs> you just breathe and you push. I was yeah. like, these, these ladies are hardcore. They um, are. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, about them and, and you know, your introduction into that world. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it was about 14, 14 years ago. I believe I just had this like this dinner at my house and it was um, it was like a fundraising dinner to raise money for this Rottweiler dog. I had that had vet bills that I couldn't pay. And so we would have like kegger parties. Um, and then sometimes we'd have these fancy dinners where I'd go diving and I'd cook all this beautiful food and we'd invite people. And this one person that came was this poet that was in town and um, mid-dinner, she just got up and asked if she could recite a poem. And she just did this beautiful poem about these women divers of Korea that, like, sustained their community and and just were these, like, these badasses. And when she was done, I was just like, what was that? And who are these people? And where is this place? And um, and that's how I heard about the Henyo. And the Henyo are these freediving women um, on this island of Jeju, which is in Korea. And there's so many different stories of, of how they got started. But basically, you know, one of them that I heard is just that when the Japanese invaded Korea, they put a strong working tax on, on the workers. And, and there was a loophole in that law where basically the tax was on men because men were the ones that kind of worked and, and, you know, did the work and made the money. And so the men, um, from what I hear, like also just like got their, you know, their women to dive. And there was these women that were diving already and they, you know, there's a loophole where they didn't get the heavy taxes. And so, so they were the ones that ended up just taking over, um, all of the work ended up being the best at it and, and sustained their whole community through that. And so, and then it became, you know, women's work and they ended up being really good at it, really able to withstand the cold waters and whatnot. And so they would pass it on to their daughters. Whenever their daughters were turned 13, they learned to be henyo themselves and to be able to free dive into these frigid waters and get, you know, abalones and conks and whatnot to feed their community and to, <clears throat> and to sell it and make money. Um, and so I've just been so intrigued by these women and 
and it's been a goal of mine to go to go meet them and i you know over over time their story has been revealed more and more especially as like kind of like this dying art because now these days most um of the young korean women want contemporary jobs and so so really it's not being passed down and it's still these granny divers who are doing the work and it looks like it might might die with them um, and so for that reason alone, I really wanted to meet them. But then when I became pregnant, even more so, I just felt like now's the time to go, you know, now more than anything. And, and a big reason of that too, was just because, you know, I, I was very openly still free diving when I was pregnant. Um, not trying to prove anything. It just is what felt most right to my body. I don't know how else to say it, but I was just always trying to make whatever decisions felt the healthiest for my body and my baby and really trying to tune into that. And there's no denying that freediving felt like that thing. It still did. It still felt like what was best for me. But obviously whenever people would see me diving or, you know, or if they would see pictures of it, I would get totally swarmed with criticism of how dare you put your baby in danger. And that's so bad for your baby and all of these things. And I would research it and anyone that really had a strong opinion had no firsthand knowledge. They weren't divers, you know? And um, and I just felt like, gosh, like when it comes to my own body and the way that my body distributes oxygen, nothing feels better to me, but I have no one to really look to for firsthand knowledge, like no doctors, you know, you know no, Divers, I don't know who. And then I thought of the henyo. I thought of that poem. I thought of the henyo. And, um, and so I started doing all this research on them and just finding these stories about how they dove throughout their entire pregnancy. You know, some of them would just like go into labor on the boat or in the water. And um, they didn't stop during their entire 10 months. They kept diving. And there's all of these records about that. And so even more so, I kind of wanted to just go Go, I mean, it's just a part of me. I wanted to go be around other freediving mothers. And um, and I also wanted to just, I think I had a, a lot of anxiety about how is being a mom going to change things for me? Is it going to take away, you know, my my career? Is it going to take away my time underwater? What What is the cost going to be? Is, is my life over <laughs> once I have this baby? And um and that was just where I felt like I needed to go. And so I just went there and man, these women are so badass. Like I think it, in a lot of ways, you know, people say, oh, you be careful when you meet your heroes because you might be disappointed. And, and that was something I was, a, I was very afraid of. And even though I had read all these great articles on them, none of the articles are, were written by divers. And so I wasn't sure what my own opinion would be. And I even tried to make space for it and tell myself, like, okay, even if even if they're not that badass, just the fact that they even dive at their age is 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 great, Kimmy. So so you know, keep that in mind. And instead, I went there, and I got to do two days of diving with them, and I couldn't even, I could barely even keep up with them. They are so legit. They are so good. And they, I came along with them for two days of work, and they basically have a boat, drop them all off drop their group of women off in the middle of the ocean. The boat leaves, boatman goes in and they're just out there with their floats and their nets and, and left to gather their conch um, for five hours straight, 
and then the boat comes back and picks them up and they they do this on a daily basis and they're not like super deep divers um they, i mean but they're still diving like close to 50 feet um but they're very very active divers um uh, they're just they're constantly moving constantly swimming against current just constantly working come right back up put their shells in in their baskets do this crazy whistle called a sumi sari where it's like whoo it sounds like whales and then they're right back down they they do not rest and and a lot of these women are like hobbling and wobbly and look a little broken on land and the minute they like jump out of the boat they're just like these navy seals and then they become these crazy sea creatures um that you would just think like that person in the wetsuit is probably like 20 years old you know, not 70. Wow. Yeah. It, it, they're, are, they're, they, are they actually 70 years old? Yeah. They're, I mean, it's, it's a wide range, but I think, um, the oldest Henyo is in, in her eighties. And, um, and then there's, there's, there's younger ones too, but yeah, 50s, 60s, 70s. And then do they, ship, do they sell the conch to local fish markets? Yes, they do. Yeah. Um, and, and they make good money and they're, and so because of that, they're very, they're these independent women and it, it, it's really great. It, they break all kinds of norms, you know, all, you know, all over the world when it comes to women, but definitely within their own culture, because they are so independent, they are the alphas and they know it. And, um, and so a lot of things about, them breaks norms and they speak they talk really loud because most of their ears are shot from diving so much like they wear these masks where they can't even equalize their ears and so most of their ears have you know some damage where they can't really hear that good so they make them talk so much louder which you know in their culture isn't considered very ladylike or whatnot also um you know in korean and asian culture in general like the more pale you are the more beautiful you are um and they're very they're very weathered very tan um so a lot of things like that would kind of you know to some some mainstream people of their culture makes them almost like second class citizens but except for the pride that comes with it because they don't have to depend on anyone they, they make their own money. They support their families. They support their husbands. They're the ones sending their kids and grandkids to college. Um, and so they have this freedom that is also breaking norms. Yeah. I was right before this podcast trying to find this study, and I apologize. I couldn't find the actual one. But um, in Japan, apparently they don't uh, older folks don't suffer from memory loss uh, nearly as much as they do in the United States and the researchers assessed that the the primary factor for it was that they don't have a belief in the culture that when you get old you lose your memory and I was thinking about that in in regards to you and really this whole conversation and the, the role that belief plays on us Um I, I, I commend you for not taking on um, what culture tells you to do. I can tell that you really um, have fought against that and tried to just maintain a real sense of um, like relationship with yourself that no one else can get in the way of. Um, and I've, I've just noticed that um, th that you've really held that closely throughout your whole career. So congrats on that. Not everyone can do it. 
Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. I just, yeah, I, I do think it's, it's just important to, to question things. I and mean, it's important. Um, I don't know, for me, I think more so it's just like when I feel like I'm just going through the motions of life, which I think is what you kind of do when you start accepting things that don't really align with your own truth. Um, but you're just not challenging it. Um, that's when I feel that's, that's, then you start going through the motions. And whenever I just start living my life where I'm going through the motions, but not really doing it out of true, like meaning or, or truth, I just become this, I, I don't like who I become. I mean, that's, that's, that's why I feel like I challenge because I don't like who I become. I just become this like second rate version of myself. And I've been there, you know, I'm this, this shell of a person and I just don't feel like that's good for me or good, good for this world. I think we're all so different and we all need to tap into our individual truth. And that, that's never going to be, you know, in complete agreement to a system. And so it's up to us to kind of navigate that and, and, and find it, I think. What do you do when you find that your kind of sense of self-worth is becoming more externally located? Do you have any habits to be able to tap back into that? I go diving. <clears throat> I, I, I just, I, for me, that is what really, what really helps me. And I think it is just because for me personally, the ocean has just held me like through my lowest lows. And, um, and so as soon as I even just get into deep water and I just see that color of blue, something healing happens already. And, um, oh. I might, I might have to drop him to his dad. No, no, it's fine. We've been going for about an hour. Um, okay. So this is totally fine. But yeah, uh, that's what it is for me. It's just, I, I, I go diving. I take, I take a deep drop. Sometimes it's like when I'm at my rock bottom in life, I have to go to the rock bottom of the ocean and kind of find the answers there. It's a damn good place to end, Kimmy Warner. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. And, and where can people check out this new film? So the new film is going to be doing a YouTube premiere on Mother's Day, May 10th at 5 p.m. PST. It is going to live there after that. So if you missed the premiere, it's still just available on Patagonia's YouTube. Um, but yeah, but that's where, where it'll be, YouTube Patagonia. Great. And I will link to it in the bio below. This was a blast. Thank you so awesome. much. Awesome. Thank you. It was Buddy's first podcast. <laughs> That's the show, everybody. I'm going to play out the song called Citadel by Opo. They listened to the podcast and they sent me some music. I don't play any instruments and have enormous respect for musicians. Um, so I love it when I get your tunes. If you are a musician and you want it played at the end of this show, email it to info at kyle.surf. Also, send me some voice memos. Come on, guys. We're isolated. We need love and connection. And you are someplace in the world right now. I don't know where you are, but hopefully you do. And you could bust out your phone, record 30 seconds to one minute of audio. Just say, hey, Kyle and crew, here's where I am in life in my meat body and on planet earth and just give me some details about your surrounding and uh i'd love to play it so you can just it's super simple bust out your phone 
use the voice memos app, record a minute, just like you're a journalist describing a spot where you're at, and email it to info at kyle.surf. Remember, also, I'm now doing the Box of Goodies subscription, so if you would like a book that I love every single month, as well as some potent Santa Cruz Medicinals CBD, you can head over to kyle.surf and join the subscription. Uh, it's a way that I will be that we can talk about books that we like together, and uh, you can support the podcast. So I've been rambling on. I'm going to leave it there. I hope you all have a great day, and I hope you enjoy this song called Citadel. Bye, Opal. Was that Scandinavian? I don't know. Oh my god. I have ducks and and one of them just got out and we just we just put up new fences and uh, it's the brown one. It's Greg Long. He's skinnier than the other ones. He gets out. Oh, and he's going into the garden. I gotta go, guys. Take this guy down. Yeah, I, we just planted new starters and he's eating them right now. So I got to go. Enjoy Citadel by Oppo. Have a great week.
Separation Return Separation 